Welcome to Cornerstone. I'm excited to be able to share with you guys today. Uh, today we're actually ending a series that we just did over the summer, uh, over the past four weeks, the, uh, out of the book of Hosea. And so um, if it's your first time here, I'm going to be recapping a lot of the book. And so don't worry, you, you're not going to be lost because you haven't been here. Um, so we're excited to have everybody that's new here, um, really filled up and up in the top here. That's really cool. Um, and I also know that for some people, uh, you're transitioning out of Boston after this summer. And so sad to see you go. But I'm glad we can end on this week and just end on the book of Hosea because I think it's uh, just a really prominent way that God represents the gospel. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hosea chapter 14. It's the very last chapter of the book. And um, today we'll spend a short time, uh, I'm going to give a shorter message because we'd like to spend some time praying afterwards. And so, um, yeah, today's a little, I, there's a lot of different elements going on today. Um, you know, next week we'll have a, a full band up here. I, I love the acoustics that challenges me to worship. And so, but next week there'll be full band. Next week Pastor Bill will be sharing. Next week we'll have speakers up at the top there so you can hear better. Um, so, we're setting up the full thing next week. So uh, today is just an appetizer. If you want to experience the full cornerstone experience, uh, come back next week. All right? Um, Hosea chapter 14. Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you the fatherless find compassion. And then the Lord said, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. Let me pray for us as we continue. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that what I just read is a promise to us every day, every moment, that as your people, you always offer to restore. You always offer to redeem. And so as we dig into your word this morning, would your word speak life and speak fresh, um, a fresh breath into our spirits, God. And any guilt, any condemnation, we pray against that in the name of Jesus. And with this place, be a place full of grace, full of hope, full of love, full of the truth of everything that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, if you're not familiar with the book of Hosea, um, we'll start reading a little bit of chapter 1, a little bit of chapter 3. But basically, uh, it's this image of marriage. And God uses this picture of marriage to describe him to his people. Now, God uses a lot of different things in the Bible to describe himself, right? He'll call himself the shepherd. He'll call himself um, a king. He'll call himself a father. And in this story, in this book, he's calling himself the husband and the bridegroom. It's not just in Hosea. I just want to look at a couple passages. In Isaiah 54, he says, do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. And then chapter 62, it says, As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God 
rejoice over you. And so not just in the book of Hosea, but in, in Isaiah and in, uh, Ezekiel, you'll see this. In, in different parts of scripture, we'll see God describe himself as a husband, as a bridegroom, and use this context of marriage to describe his relationship to his people. Now, why, why marriage? Um, and there's a few reasons for this, and, and just a couple quick ones. One, I think, is because the intimacy in marriage. If you see God as someone who's distant and far away, every time he talks about his relationship with you in a marriage, it's one thing, a king's relationship with a servant. You can kind of see that as distant, maybe. But in a marriage, he's saying, I'm not distant from my people. If you see me as someone who's just far away, giving orders, just as a moral compass in your life, just kind of telling you what to do and showing you some things every once in a while, he's saying, I am not merely that. I am a husband. I, am, I want to be deeply intimate. I want to be intricately involved in every aspect of your life. That's one aspect of marriage. What's another thing? And, and I think if we understand who God is, he's saying that I should have power, have this ultimate power over your life the way that a spouse does. For example, um, clothing, right? Um, if, if, if you like what you're wearing, and you're like, I look pretty, pretty good in this shirt, and then your significant other says, I don't like that shirt. <laughs> what happens? All of a sudden, they have this power over your mind, power over your image of yourself, and they this shirt's not that nice. But then all, on the other end, if they say, I like that shirt, like, yeah, looks pretty good. Looks pretty good, right? And there's this power to influence the way you think, the way you feel, the way you are with a single word. If the whole world thinks that you are not worth much, but your spouse says, I value you and I cherish you, you feel valuable. If the whole world says you're beautiful, and your spouse says, you are not, you don't feel beautiful. On the flip end, if, if the whole world says that you are not beautiful, but you come to your lover, and they say, you are the most beautiful thing in front of me, before my eyes that I've ever seen, then you feel precious and you feel beautiful, right? And there's that power in a marriage relationship that a significant other has to affect entirely how you see yourself. And God is saying, let the way that I see you shape everything entirely the way that you see yourself. So those are a couple quick reasons why marriage. But I think one of the biggest reasons we hit in verse 2. This is chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, you know, a lot of times we're praying about, God, who should I marry? God, who should I marry? And if God ever told you, marry that promiscuous person, I don't know. I think we'd be confused, right? Um, but for Hosea, that's exactly what he says. That's exactly what he says. Um, and why does he do that? Hosea being a prophet, he is someone who's going to speak God's truth over people. And when he begins his ministry, it says, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea. So when, in the beginning of his ministry, God wants to take Hosea, and you're not, he's saying, you're not just going to speak it, but you're going to live the message that I want you to share. 
And you're not just going to speak because I told you something. You're going to speak from your own heart as you've experienced. And what are you going to experience? Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so he wants Hosea to experience what it's like to be in an adulterous relationship. Because that's how God feels when it comes to the people of Israel. His people are being adulterous towards him. And you think, why marriage? Well, if you think of a shepherd and his sheep, and you have a couple stray sheep who are just not doing what they're supposed to because they're stupid, the shepherd might feel like, oh, silly sheep, right? Idiots. Um, Or a king and his servants, and he has rebellious servants. The king would feel, like, angry at rebellious servants. Or a a, a father to his children, uh, rebellious children, you know, you're upset. Why don't my children listen to me? But you think about a marriage context and an unfaithful marriage partner. You're not just angry. There is something deeply painful about that that might only be experienced in a broken marriage. I think even in broken dating relations, sometimes we get a glimpse of what that might feel like. But once you're in a committed marriage to experience that, the only way God could reveal to Hosea what that feels like is to actually go through it. And so he says, I want you to marry an adulterous woman because this is what you're going to communicate to the people of Israel, that you are an adulterous people to your God. And so he marries Gomer, and they have children, um, One, two, three. And the third one uh, is questionable. Uh, I mean, because the third one's named Lo-Ami, and people say that this might not be his own child because that means not mine. And so that might not be his own. So even in that marriage, while she's living under the same roof with with him, she may have been with other men. Um, And as the story goes, she does leave the house. She leaves the house, and she goes to other men. And that's when we pick up in verse 3. This is what God says to Hosea to, to this adult, about this adulterous woman. He says, The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again. I should say though. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods, I love the sacred raisin cakes. It's good raisin cakes. <laughs> In the midst of talking about adultery, God's like, and they love these raisin cakes. Um, it's kind of funny, right? Like, I don't, I don't know. It's kind of comical. But um, so here, here's this broken marriage. And God doesn't say just, just let her go. But he's saying, go after her again. Go after her again. And this is the whole point. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Some people will read this book and they'll turn it into a story about marriage. You know, and 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 in this book, you can learn stuff about marriage. It's not prescriptive towards marriage. Um, I don't think God would say every adulterous relationship, you need to just keep going back. And you can learn about persistence. You can learn about continuing to love someone and how to do that. But it's not ultimately about marriage. Ultimately, it's about this. 
Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Again, it comes back to this is not a picture of marriage. This is a picture of God communicated through an illustration of marriage. And to these adulterous people, and, and we kind of laughed about raisin cakes, you know. Um, and, and I'm sure if we were to study the times, there would be more to these raisin cakes than we understand. But uh, at least looking at it now, it's like, are you serious? You committed this adultery with God and were unfaithful to God because of raisin cakes? And without going too much into what raisin cakes are, I think in hindsight, when we get to the end of our life, and when we see God for who he is, see him in all his glory and all his splendor and all his awesomeness, because God is awesome and he's beautiful and he's delightful and he's the greatest joy. And to be in that presence where we're in the presence of our greatest delight, we'll look back and every idol in our life, no matter how great you think it is right now, no matter how awesome it is, no matter how much of a temptation it is, every idol will be a mere raisin cake. Everything. And so we laugh about this, but for these people, this was serious. These raisin cakes were serious. One day we'll look back and everything's going to be a joke. Are you serious? You, we were adulterous towards God, to this amazing God, for a raisin cake. And to be betrayed in that adulterous way, it's one thing if, if the thing that they're betraying you with is actually awesome. And you can, might be like, you know what? If you're going to cheat on me, like, okay, I understand. Like, that's pretty awesome. And that's one thing. That's not right. But that's one thing. But then to say, you cheated on me for a raisin cake, that's humiliating. That's degrading. That's utterly shameful. And this is what Israelites do. This is what God's people do. And God says, go back to her. She has shamed you. She has mocked you and humiliated you and and cheated on you for men who are not worth her time, not worth your time, for men who don't value her, for cheap men she has cheated on you, but go back to her. And this is what he does. Verse 2, so I bought her. He goes out and he looks for her, and he buys her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. And just to think about that for a second, it's not like he goes out and he just finds her and says, come back to me. He has to buy her. What does that mean? She's being sold now. She's not even out there on her own free will. She's in some kind of marketplace being sold. And um, if, if you've looked into sex slavery and sex trafficking today, there are women still being sold, and children into slave labor, who are still being sold in, in much more hidden, dark places, being sold like animals. But in, back in the day here, 8th century BC, it was a public thing. You just sell women. And so now, she's not even out there to just go find and say, come back to me. She's gotten into a relationship with somebody who says, you know, you're just, I'm going to sell you. I'm going to sell you like an object. And so she has no dignity anymore. And she's out there in the marketplace, up for auction, up for sale. So you can imagine her. You know, it's her turn amongst other women. She's standing in, 
You know, that's not a proud moment. That's, that's a shameful moment. And so she's probably looking towards the ground, not making eye contact with anything, just feeling broken, feeling humiliated, feeling worthless. And the auction starts, and a man says, two shekels. Another man says, four shekels. The man says, ten shekels. And the man shouts out, I give 15 shekels. 15 shekels, a homer, and a lethic of barley. And Gomer is standing there, and she's thinking, I know that voice. I know that voice. And she looks up, and it's the same man that committed his life to her, who, who said his vows to her, and she read vows to him. It's the same man now buying her up for auction, paying the price for her to get her back, the same man that she betrayed and humiliated. And it's not like he's the only one. Then The community knows about this. Everybody knows about this adulterous woman. The whole community knows what she has done to this man that she's married. And the community is thinking, how can you buy this woman? What do you want with her? She's humiliated you. And he's saying, no, I love this woman, and I'm going to continue to love her, and I'm going to buy her whatever the price is. She might be thinking, you know, he wants to get back at me. He's going to buy me and put me to work as a form of revenge. But that's not it at all. He wants to love her again. And this is the image. This is the illustration. Uh, James Boyce, author, pastor, theologian, called Chapter 3 of Hosea. He preached from it. And he says, this is, and he called, titled it, The Greatest Chapter of the Bible. Arguably, there are many great chapters. But for some, some would say this is the greatest chapter. The the story of God, the illustration of God purchasing his adulterous people. And so this is the illustration that God gives. And what does this mean to us? Because, you know, it... A lot of us haven't committed adultery. In our, in our, we haven't been married, some of us. And those of us who are married, we haven't done this adultery thing. But what does adultery with God mean? And I think it's this. If, if you think about what adultery is, it's so much more than just a physical thing, right? It's, it's not about being physical, right? Like, it, you don't question somebody when they shake hands with somebody. Whoa, it's a little too intimate on that handshake. Right? Because it's, it's not just not a physical thing. But what happens in adultery is the engagement of a physical action, which is, is it your heart's engaged, your spirit's engaged. And, and ultimately, what you're doing is delighting in someone, and they delight in you. Right? And, and physically, it's, 